This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Preserving a Land of Religious Freedom. In the first half, D. Todd Christofferson shares his address, Religious Freedom, a Cherished Heritage to Defend. Then in the second half, Joseph Lieberman speaks on faith and the public square. Independence Day is a wonderful celebration of America's heritage of constitutional liberty. And my remarks this evening are about America's great heritage of religious liberty and about the need for each of us to defend that heritage before it's too late. In 1790, at a time when Western Europe excluded Jews from the full rights of citizenship, including the ability to hold public office, President George Washington wrote a memorable letter to the Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. They had written congratulating him on his election. In reply, Washington assured them that, quote, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should conduct themselves as good citizens. End quote. And he included a prayer for their welfare. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. No one who knows the difficult history of the Jewish people or their fate during succeeding generations can fail to be impressed by Washington's affirmation of religious freedom. Last year at an interfaith conference on religious freedom in Sao Paulo, Brazil, I addressed a meeting of religious leaders including Catholics, Evangelicals, Seventh-day Adventists, Jews, Muslims, and many others. There I explain religious freedom is the cornerstone of peace in a world with many competing philosophies. It gives all of us space to determine for ourselves what we think and believe and to follow the truth that God speaks to our hearts. While protection from government persecution is, of course, crucial, that's not all that religious freedom means. A robust freedom is not merely what political philosophers have referred to as the negative freedom to be left alone. Rather, it's a much richer, positive freedom, the freedom to live one's religion or belief in a legal, political, and social environment that's tolerant, respectful, and accommodating of diverse beliefs. That freedom is now under fire. Although religious freedom lies at the core of what America is and what it stands for, critics now openly ask whether religion belongs in American public life at all. Some say that faithful Americans have no business speaking of their beliefs when addressing issues of public concern, even when those issues involve unmistakably moral judgments. Others condemn churches and religious organizations for expressing moral and religious perspectives on matters of public policy, especially when those perspectives conflict with secular viewpoints. Some even claim with no sense of history that religious people and institutions violate the constitutional separation of church and state 
if they bring their beliefs into the public square. A few scholars have gone so far as to argue that religion does not deserve to be tolerated, much less receive special protection. Recently, it's become popular to argue that the freedom of religion is really only the right to worship rather than the right to freely exercise your faith in daily life, as if religion should be kept in the closet or some other private place. Some advocates demean as discrimination the long-standing right of religious organizations and schools to have faith-based standards in employment and admissions. Others resort to politically correct name-calling rather than talking about difficult topics in a spirit of mutual respect. Hurtful labels like bigot or hater are all too common. There are concerted efforts to shame and intimidate believers who have traditional moral values and efforts to suppress religious practices and viewpoints regarding marriage, family, gender, sexuality. Worst of all, government sometimes joins in these efforts. So religious freedom is indeed under attack. In case you think that's an exaggeration, let me cite to you a statement by Professor Douglas Laycock, one of the nation's premier authorities on religion and law. Quote, For the first time in nearly 300 years, important forces in American society are questioning the free exercise of religion in principle, suggesting that free exercise of religion may be a bad idea, or at least a right to be minimized. Unquote. I'm convinced that those who question the value or even the legitimacy of religious freedom do not understand that it is woven into the very soul of America. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, A page of history is worth a volume of logic. So let's review a little history to see what role religious faith and churches have played in the miraculous unfolding of America. Religious conviction was a leading reason why colonists left England for the New World. One historian wrote that, quote, when the English undertook to plant colonies in America, they commenced not with propositions about the rights of man or with the gospel of wealth, but with absolute certainties concerning the providence of God, unquote. Religious purpose was the common thread connecting the Puritans of Massachusetts who felt a divinely appointed duty to found Zion in the wilderness with Virginia's first colonists who looked to God for their success. William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania. Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island, established colonies dedicated to the principle of religious liberty. And Maryland was established as a place of religious toleration for England's persecuted Catholic minority. Religion remained a vital source of shared meaning in the years leading up to the American Revolution. The principal influence in public debates during that period was the King James Bible. Indeed, the American Revolution cannot be understood without taking into account the religious teachings that motivated patriots to action. Following the battles of Lexington and Concord, sermons rang out across New England. Clergymen, as one scholar noted, connected religion and patriotism and in their sermons and prayers represented the cause of America as the cause of heaven. 
Thousands of sermons justified resistance to British tyranny by, as another scholar put it, reaffirming New England's identity, enduring identity as an embattled people of the word who were commissioned to uphold a sacred and exclusive covenant between themselves and God. The clergymen of New England were not alone in drawing the connection between religion and patriotism. In New Jersey, John Witherspoon, James Madison's tutor at what is now Princeton University, delivered a sermon in 1776 announcing his support for the revolution. He explained that the union of the colonies against Great Britain resulted from, quote, a deep and general conviction that our civil and religious liberties depended on it, unquote. Capturing the sentiments of that patriotic generation, one historian wrote that, quote, the men of 1776 believed that the good state would rise on the rock of private and public morality. That morality was in the case of most men and all states the product of religion, and that the earthly mission of religion was to set men free. It was no mere pose when they justified resistance to oppression as obedience to God and an appeal to heaven. Hence, it's no surprise that just weeks before the Declaration of Independence, Virginia adopted a Bill of Rights largely penned by George Mason. It's a ringing affirmation of religious liberty and remains an inspiration. Quote, religion, or the duty we owe to our Creator, and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And therefore, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience." Unquote. Of course, the Declaration itself reminds us that Americans believed they were endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Later, the Constitution would enshrine the first of those unalienable rights, the right to religious freedom. These formative experiences of colonization and revolution solidified the importance of religion in our national understanding. The French political thinker Alexis de Tocqueville, visiting America during the 1830s, reported that Americans considered religion indispensable to freedom. I stop the first American whom I meet, Tocqueville wrote and ask him if he thinks religion is useful for the stability and good order of society. He immediately responds that a civilized society, but above all a free society, cannot subsist without religion. But it wasn't just America's colonists and founders who valued faith and religious freedom. Repeating the pattern set by their Puritan forebears, early Latter-day Saints fled from state to state eventually settling in the Great Basin in the hope of building Zion in the wilderness. Religious convictions and language set the terms of the national debates over slavery, emancipation, and the Civil War. Within my lifetime, the Civil Rights Movement depended on the persuasive power of ministers and the language of religious belief. Martin Luther King, Jr. wrote from the Birmingham jail, for instance, quote, Human progress comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God." Unquote. 
So religion and religious freedom are deeply connected to both the formation of America and our ongoing effort, in the words of the Constitution, to form a more perfect union and establish justice. As one historian summarized, quoting, American churchmen and American churches have, throughout our history, played an important role in public affairs. The churches have usually assumed that their mission includes active participation in the formulation and fulfillment of moral principle. Whether the cause has been abolition, prohibition, or integration, the churches and their leaders have played a central, sometimes crucial, role in translating what the churches conceived to be moral principle into rules of law. Religious participation in public life is one of the golden threads in our national tapestry. It is also, of course, a cherished constitutional right. The First Amendment to the Constitution declares that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble to petition the government for redress of grievances. Notice that religious liberty is the first freedom mentioned in the First Amendment. It consists, first, of protecting from laws, quote, respecting an establishment of religion. This is what we lawyers call the Establishment Clause. Some of you didn't know I used to be a lawyer. I hope that doesn't lower your opinion on me. <laughs> Unlike England, for example, this country knows no national church, and government may not officially prefer one religion over another. But some have misunderstood the ban on establishing an official religion to mean that government should treat religion with skepticism or hostility even. Not so. The Supreme Court has said that the Establishment Clause does not license government to treat religion and those who teach or practice it as subversive of American ideals and therefore subject to unique disabilities. And contrary to what some say, a law does not become unconstitutional when it coincides with religious principles. Otherwise, we couldn't have laws punishing murder and theft. The other First Amendment right protecting religion forbids the government from enacting laws, quote, prohibiting the free exercise, unquote, of religion. Notice the word exercise. It protects the right to exercise religion in our daily lives, not just to believe whatever we like or worship privately in our homes and chapels, but to live openly and freely according to our faith as long as we respect the fundamental rights of others. The First Amendment's protection against an established religion goes with its guarantee of the free exercise and are not only freedoms that make religion possible or religious liberty possible, but the First Amendment's freedom of speech and press and assembly, plus the freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances, all of these ensure that religious people and institutions can function freely and openly in our society as equal citizens. And the right to exercise religion would be seriously diminished if we couldn't say what we believe. Fortunately, in common with all Americans, 
Religious believers and organizations are entitled to freedom of speech. The right to speak on matters of public concern is beyond dispute. The Supreme Court has taught that private religious speech, far from being a First Amendment orphan, is as fully protected under the First Amendment speech clause as secular private expression. Religious speech cannot be singled out for government suppression. Nor is there any question that churches and other religious organizations, not just individuals, hold the right of free speech too. To be effective, the freedom to speak must also include freedom to publish one's opinion, whether communicated through traditional means like books and newspapers and television or through the global medium of the Internet, religious voices cannot be silenced any more than any other points of view. All these rights, including the freedom of peaceable assembly, are indispensable to what we mean by religious freedom. As I have explained on another occasion, we use our freedom of religion and belief to establish our core convictions, without which all other human rights would be meaningless. How can we claim the freedom of speech without being able to say what we truly believe? How can we claim the freedom of assembly unless we can gather with others who share our ideals? How can we enjoy freedom of the press unless we can publicly print or post who we really are? There are two big points I want you to remember when you leave this evening. The first is that religious participation in public life is not only part of American history and a constitutionally protected freedom, it's also good for our nation. All laws and government policies are based on values, religious or otherwise. Everyone has a right to be heard, to compete in the marketplace of ideas, and in influencing governmental decisions. To silence one voice potentially leads to silencing all others. Religious voices are at least as deserving of being heard as any others. In fact, churches and other religious organizations bring unique experiences and perspectives to public policy debates. They recognize corrosive social forces that threaten faith and family and freedom. They know personally about the hardships of family breakdown, unemployment, poverty, drug abuse, and the numerous other social ills. Why? Because they're on the front lines helping individuals and families work through these wrenching problems. When they speak out, they do so not for selfish reasons like special interest groups that constantly lobby our public officials, but out of concern for the people they minister to their families, society itself. They bring a moral, often cautionary voice to matters of social and public policy that we desperately need in this age of materialism and self-promotion and disruptive change. The perspective of churches and religious leaders make an irreplaceable contribution to our ongoing democratic conversation about how we should live together their voices are essential, and so are yours. If you're a person of faith, you have a critical contribution to make to our country and society. Public discussions about the common good are enriched by men and women like you who routinely put duty above convenience and conscience above personal advantage. And don't be intimidated by those who claim that you're imposing 
your religious beliefs on others. In a pluralistic society, to promote one's values for the good of society is not imposing them on others. It's putting them forward for consideration along with all others. Societies will choose and decide. Someone's values will prevail in the end. And all of us have the right and duty to argue for what we believe will best serve the need of the people and most benefit the common good. Without you, our political and social debates will lack the richness and the insights needed to make wise decisions, and our nation and communities will suffer. So again, the first thing I want you to remember is that the religious voice is vitally important to our country, both to society and to wise government. The second point I want you to remember is that it's time to get involved and to take a stand for religious freedom. There is much you can do to ensure a culture where religious freedom has an honored place in American life. Begin by becoming informed. Study the principles of the American founding and teach them in your families. Teach your families to cherish America's heritage of freedom. Teach them the importance of religion to our nation and society. Teach them to respect the faith of all people, even those with very different beliefs, and teach them that respecting Religious freedom means tolerating religious belief and speech and practices we disagree with. That's the price of asking others to respect our freedoms. Next, speak up. Churches and people of faith must not allow themselves to be intimidated and silenced. Your opinions count. You have a right to speak and to be heard. Make the effort to stay informed about issues of public importance and then speak out with courage and civility, and I do emphasize civility. Whatever your faith, our society needs your voice, your experience, and your goodness. Next, get involved. You don't need to run for president or Congress to make a big difference. To borrow a phrase from another LDS leader, lift where you stand. The crisis of religious freedom is as much a cultural crisis as a political one or a legal one. So get involved in the cultural and civic organizations around you so that you can influence them to respect religious freedom. Be active in the PTA. Express your views to the school board. The future of religious freedom will depend a great deal on what our children are taught. If you are a professional or run a business, be involved with your professional association or the Chamber of Commerce. A lack of business and professional support for religious freedom is a real concern, and you can make a difference. Participate in your political party. Help guide it towards sound principles. Write to your representatives. Make it a family tradition to vote regularly. There are numerous opportunities to get involved right in your own community. Finally, and above all, as the Apostle Paul wrote, be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Whatever your religion, live your faith so that others will see your good works, experience your genuine love and friendship, and feel God working through you. Americans tend to respect and protect what they believe is good. So let us show them the highest and best in our faiths our willingness to love and serve others, to build strong families, to live honorable lives, 
to be good citizens. As our fellow citizens see the goodness of your faith, they'll want to listen to you and understand when you say your religious freedom is being abridged. They may not agree with you or even understand entirely the issue that is so important to you. But if they know you and respect you because you are a true example of the believers, they'll be far more inclined to work toward a solution that respects essential religious freedoms. My friends and fellow citizens, we do live in challenging times. Religious freedom is indeed under fire, and things may get worse before they get better. But these are our times. This is our moment to defend our fundamental freedoms with courage, conviction, and civility, drawing upon our noble heritage as Americans. Each one of us can make a profound difference. And so, as the great Winston Churchill said, on the eve of the world's greatest conflict, let us arise again and take our stand for freedom as in the olden time. As fellow believers and citizens of this great nation, we can do no less. May God bless you and this wonderful nation. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Preserving a Land of Religious Freedom. We've just heard from D. Todd Christofferson. After the break, we'll return with Joseph Lieberman for Faith and the Public Square. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Preserving a Land of Religious Freedom. Next is Joseph Lieberman, Senator for Connecticut at the time of this address, titled Faith and the Public Square. I have the greatest admiration for this university's work in educating minds, ennobling spirits, and inspiring in its students a real-life commitment to the words etched in stone at the entrance of this great campus, enter to learn, go forth to serve. I will come back to that. Uh, I do feel a special uh, connection to the Mormon faith and uh, to BYU because of the core principles this uh, university stands for, which uh, are at once rooted in the tradition of the Mormon faith, but also clearly shared by I would say most Americans, and I would say certainly most religiously observant uh, Jewish Americans. Throughout my life, I've been blessed to experience the bond that exists between people of faith whose faiths are different. And I have felt that in my life with Mormons that I've been privileged to know, have as friends, or to uh, work with. People of faith share a lot, beginning with our gratitude for what we've been given. First and foremost, our lives. We believe in what both the Bible and the Declaration of Independence tells us, that as the Bible, of course, makes clear, we are not here by accident, but because of a divine, godly act of creation. 
And as the Declaration, written by men of faith, tells us, every one of us is a child of God. And as such, each and every one of us has inalienable rights by birth to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We believe that each of us with those rights also has responsibilities that are articulated in our faiths. And each of us has a destiny, and that this great nation of ours itself has a destiny. That's why I'm so pleased that uh, you have asked me this morning to speak about faith in the public square, faith in the American public square. It is a subject that I've thought about a lot, written about a little bit, and lived a lot in what I think is a classically and wonderfully American way. My Jewish faith is central to my life. I was raised in a religiously observant uh, family, given to me by my parents, informed by my rabbis. My faith has provided me with a foundation, an order, a sense of purpose in my life. It has much to do with the way I strive to navigate in a constructive way through every day, both personally and professionally, in ways that are large and small. One of the central observances of my faith, and also, of course, of the Mormon faith, is the observance of the Sabbath. To remember the Sabbath day, as the commandment says, to keep it holy. As President Samuelson has uh, been kind enough to say, my observance of the Sabbath is the subject of this book I've written called The Gift of Rest, Rediscovering the Beauty of the Sabbath. Now, I know that some people have asked, why would a United States senator write a book about a religious subject like the Sabbath? It's a good question. It's very different than anything I've ever written, and I think while people in Connecticut certainly know that I'm Sabbath observant and perhaps people around the country because of my vice presidential campaign in 2000 also know that uh, I'm Sabbath observant. Uh, I never really was asked to talk a lot more than that about it. I think people probably know what I don't do from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown, which is I don't work uh, unless there's an emergency of some kind. But they don't know what I do. And so um, I decided to write this book to try to share what I call the gift of, of Sabbath rest. And it is interesting that the Sabbath is observed by all of us as the result of a commandment in the Bible that God gave to Moses. But I know that many of you who observe the Sabbath, as I and my family, though it started as a directive, if you will, um, we experience it as a gift. Uh, in uh, the Talmud, a rabbi of centuries and centuries ago imagines a conversation between God and Moses in which God says, Moses, in my storehouse, I have a very special gift for you. It is called the Sabbath. And... Um, I decided to write this book because um, I think Sabbath observance has diminished in our country over the course of my life. 
and the country has lost as a result of that. I also believe, though, this, this day, this institution is thousands of years old, it is probably more relevant and necessary today than ever before. And not just in a religious sense, but really in a quality of life sense, because we're all working so hard. And um, we never get away from work unless we choose to, because we always have our cell phone, our Blackberry, our iPad, our iPhone, whatever, um, with us. So I hoped in bringing, this book is really an attempt to invite the reader to come with my wife, my family, and me through a typical Sabbath day, observed according to traditional Jewish practice, but I'm writing this book, uh, well, in part for Jews who may not be observing Sabbath as much as I would like, but really for people of all faiths, and in some sense for people of no particular faith, hoping that they will decide to accept the gift in whole or in part and bring it uh, into their lives. My Sabbath observance at different times in my career has, of course, intersected with my political life and governmental uh, responsibility because it's different than the rules that most people live by. So when I first ran for office way back in the 1970s, and I was lucky enough to become a state senator in Connecticut. I made an early decision that I would never be involved in politics on the Sabbath. If I held an office that had governmental responsibility that I couldn't delegate, such as voting as a senator or going to a a meeting about a, a national security crisis, I would do that because I was instructed by my rabbis that when life intersects with religious law, life has to triumph, particularly on the Sabbath, which after all is a day in which we are honoring God's creation of life and how inconsistent it would be if one has the opportunity to protect life, to protect security, to not do that uh, in observance of a religious law that's meant to commemorate the Sabbath. So early on when I was a state senator and people would ask me to a political event on the Sabbath or to a testimonial dinner and I'd say no. Sometimes they were puzzled. Other times they were just plain angry. And uh, I would have to explain why. But I can tell you over time as they realized I was giving these answers and saying I couldn't come as a matter of religious observance and belief and that I was doing it consistently Uh, They accepted it and respected it. Uh, I was different than most of them in those practices, but um, in in the spirit, as I'll say in a moment, that I think is fundamentally American, those differences uh, did not get in the way of them respecting my beliefs and supporting my career, and in some sense even feeling that interfaith bond, because though we were of different faiths, we were joined in classically American uh, style by a shared belief in God and everything that comes from that. So we are now at the start of a presidential campaign in which discussions uh, and debates about the relationship between 
politics and religion, about the proper place of faith in the public square, have already begun to play a prominent role. These are are not new questions. They are very old. They go back uh, to the founders of our country who wrote the Declaration and later the Constitution. And the words of our founders are relevant because they remind us from the beginning of America that we have been a nation that has defined itself not so much by our geographical borders as by our national values. And one of those values was and is a belief shared by most Americans that there is a God. Now, I know that may be controversial to some because though we have that belief, we respect the rights of those who don't share that belief. But the United States was, as the Declaration of Independence says, secured. The line is, in order to secure the rights that are mentioned in the first graph of our first document, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are the endowment of our Creator, that the new nation, the United States of America, was being formed. I always like to say that uh, the truth is that America has been, from the beginning, a faith-based initiative. And anybody who tries to separate faith from America's public square is doing something unnatural and ultimately bad for our country. Our founders were all men of a particular Christian disposition, mostly Protestant. And so you have to give them extraordinary credit that when it came to religion, the remarkable documents they wrote and embraced guaranteed religious freedom for everyone, not just people who shared their faith, prohibited the establishment of any one religion, that is, that there'd be an official religion, although they might have been tempted to do that, you might say, and still give others freedom of religion, but there'd be an official religion. No, they didn't do that, even though they were and are now Christians, a large majority in this country. They were remarkable people. The First Amendment of our Constitution that prohibits the establishment of an official religion ensures for every American the right to worship, or as I said, not to worship, as he or she chooses. I always delighted one day when I thought that one of the rights to liberty that our Creator has endowed us with is the right not to believe in the Creator. Now, that's not a right that many Americans exercise, but it is a measure of the breadth of the vision of the Founders that it's so. In Article 6 of the Constitution of the United States, the Founders did something else quite specific to guarantee this vision. They protected every American from religious discrimination in politics by prohibiting what they called religious tests for public office. The truth is that in many of the original colonies of the United States, there were laws saying that you had to be of a particular Christian denomination to run for public office. But the founders wanted to rise above that quite remarkably. Succeeding generations have been inspired by this founding vision and I think endeavored to make real its promise, the promise of 
what I call freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. Our unique constitutional history that I've just described created in turn a unique American public square in which there is no establishment of one religion, freedom of all religions, but there is the presence of religion in our uh, public life. The, uh, the greatest laws that are written, including our Constitution, are the ones that are so broadly accepted by the people of a nation as ours that they become not just laws that one feels compelled to follow because they're in the law, but they become part of the fiber of the country. They become part of our national system of ethics. And I think so too is it with uh, freedom of religion. Alexis de Tocqueville, the famous French student of America, noted the remarkable religiosity of Americans in his definitive account of the United States written in the 19th century. He wrote uh, that there's no country that he had ever seen in which religion, I quote, retains greater influence over the souls of men, I would add now women, too, than in America, end quote. And added that, quote, there can be no greater proof of its utility and its conformity to human nature than that its influence is powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation on earth, end of quote. I think that's still true today. I saw a recent independent public opinion poll that said that over 90% of Americans say they believe in God. I'm always encouraged to see how far ahead of politicians God is running in those polls. <laughs> and the majority of Americans say that they regularly attend the house of worship. De Tocqueville also observed that though Americans were divided into many different religious sects, as he called them, they all, and I quote here, look upon their religion in the same light. He recognized that though Americans follow many different belief systems, there are universal values that unite us all. And that is a second consequence of our uh, country's unique commitment uh, to freedom of religion, but not freedom from religion. Religious freedom in America has led in the public square to a set of shared values that were obviously evident in the 19th century and I think at our best moments remain so today. President Lincoln called this America's political religion and the poet Walt Whitman praised what he called a sublime and serious religious democracy in America. In American history, this sublime and serious combination of religion and democracy has overall been a force for great good. Some of the most important movements of conscience in our history emerged from the convictions of religious people and used the language and liturgy of faith to build popular support. I'm thinking of the abolitionist movement in the 19th century that led to the end of the evil of slavery. It was that same spirit that motivated much of the suffragist movement in the uh, early part of the uh, 20th century that fought for and won uh, rights for uh, women in our country. And, and it was that same spirit that I was personally privileged to witness when I was a college student in the 60s and participated in the civil rights movement led by a religious figure, Dr. Martin Luther King who invoked America's political religion, as Lincoln called it, in advancing uh, that noble cause. 
I myself was inspired to join that movement because of the values it represented, which were deeply rooted in my own faith and and religious history, the values of equality, of service, of tolerance, and of respect uh, for law. It was also while I was at college that another important barrier in America was broken. In the fall of my freshman year, a Roman Catholic, John F. Kennedy, was elected to the presidency of the United States for the first time in American history. I will tell you, as a young Jewish American, not thinking of a political career, believe me, at age 18, when he won, I had some sense that doors had opened for me, that somehow horizon had expanded for me, and for others who were from faiths that were not the majority, from races or other nationalities. I didn't know how or where that might happen, but I felt inspired and empowered by Kennedy's election. I, at that point, I I certainly wasn't dreaming yet of being a senator, and I never could have uh, imagined what happened to me in 2000. In 2000, then Vice President Gore gave me the privilege of being the first Jewish American to be nominated for national office when he asked me to be his vice presidential running mate. And that year, I will tell you, I personally experienced so much of what I have described up until now, the American people's generosity of fairness and acceptance of religious diversity. The Reverend Jesse Jackson said on the day that I was nominated, in America, when a barrier is broken for one group, the doors of opportunity open wider for every other American. I felt that shared sense of progress throughout the campaign. I also felt free, as somebody noted recently, freer than Kennedy did in some ways, to talk about my religion and the central role of faith in my life. I write about all this in the book, but I want to just share a few anecdotes with you from it that make a larger point, I hope, about the constructive role of faith in America's public square. There was a Secret Service agent who traveled with me during that campaign. He had worked several national campaigns before, and he told me one day that he had never heard so many people saying to a candidate, God bless you. Well, I thought about that, and I I honestly think it's a reflection of Christian Americans saying to me in those magical words, God bless you, we know you're a religious person. We know you don't have exactly the same religious uh, faith or observance that we do, but we know we share a common history, and um, we're glad you're running. On another occasion, in a slightly more humorous way, I remember speaking to a rally of Latino Americans and seeing in the front row a woman who had created a poster which um, vividly expressed this sense of shared values and and rising together that I'm speaking of now in two powerful words that I don't think ever appeared together before. And those two words were, Viva Chutzpah. (laughs) That said it all. Now, in the end... The Gore-Lieberman ticket actually received over half a million more votes than the Bush-Cheney ticket. 
something I enjoyed reminding President Bush and Vice President Cheney of very often. Uh, <laughs> now, believe me, I do not cite these numbers to relitigate that small matter of Florida's electoral votes, but because I think, like sports, politics ultimately comes down to numbers. So I cite those half million uh, votes as the best, and really to me, and I hope everybody, inspiring evidence, unambiguous evidence that our ticket was judged on the basis of our qualifications and policies and most definitely not on the basis of my religion. Because my religion is different, as I said before. And as I get to the next section of what I want to say, let me just describe some of the ways in which uh, my religion is different. You know, there's a code, there are rules, there are rules that rabbis uh, created over the centuries to define some of the basic principles in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, which all the spaces are not always filled in. So, for instance, we have pretty rigid rules for observant Jews about what we can eat and drink and when. We uh, observant uh, Jews, particularly women, have a dress code that they're supposed to follow. Probably not known by many people that there are even a prescription for Jewish men to wear a particular undergarment. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Uh, so uh, we have different practices. But the great thing that I experienced uh, in 2000 was that those practices were set aside because of all we shared, but also because of our national ideals of religious freedom and no religious test for public office. So in this 2000 presidential election cycle, faith and politics have become a source of some controversy. First, in the expression that some people have given to their faith, particularly Governor Perry and Congresswoman Backman, some people have real anxiety about that. I, I don't share that anxiety. A candidate, it seems to me, doesn't give up their freedom of religion or freedom of expression when they decide to run for office. They have the right, if they choose to talk about the role that faith plays in their life, understanding that others, voters, have the right to uh, decide based on those expressions whether that affects their view of those uh, candidates. I will tell you personally that I always welcome the opportunity to hear about a candidate's faith and what it means to them, because I think it helps me understand them as people better. The second religious controversy in uh, the 2012 campaign is, of course, close to BYU. Uh, and it is that two members of the Church of Latter-day Saints are running for president, uh, Governor Romney and Governor Huntsman. And one of them, Governor Romney, a distinguished graduate of this university, may well end up as the Republican nominee. In these Republican primary campaigns and in the general election, if Governor Romney is nominated, Americans are going to be challenged again to be true to our founding principles of equality of opportunity and the clear prohibition in the Constitution, Article 6, of a religious test being applied for public office. In 1960, when Kennedy was running for president, there was still significant anti-Catholic prejudice in America. On the eve of the vote, he spoke about this, and his words remain quite relevant today. But I think this time more relevant to Governor Romney and Governor Huntsman, at least based on 
some of what I consider to be the prejudiced things that have been said about their faith and its relevance uh, to this uh, campaign. President Kennedy said in the 1960 campaign, and I quote, if this election is decided on the basis that 40 million Americans who happen to be Catholic lost their chance of being president on the day they were baptized, then it is the whole nation that will be the loser. In the eyes of Catholics and non-Catholics around the world, in the eyes of history, and in the eyes of our own people. End quote. And of course the same will be true if Americans judge Governor Romney or Governor Huntsman in the primaries or the general election based on their Mormon faith and not on their personal qualities and their ideals and ideas for office. Just as Americans rose above their prejudices or their discomfort at the differences as I've described them when Kennedy's Roman Catholic faith was different in 1960 and 16 years later when Jimmy Carter's Christian evangelical faith was different and again in 2000 when my Jewish faith was different so too must Governor Romney be judged not on the basis of his faith which may be different to many but on his personal qualities, his leadership, his experience, and as I've said, his ideas for America's future. My personal experience in 2000, which I've described to you today, gives me great confidence that the voters will again reject any sectarian religious test and show their strong character, their instinctive fairness, and their steadfast belief in the ideals of the Declaration and the Constitution. And when they do, another barrier may well be broken for another group in America, and the doors of opportunity will thereby open wider for every American. Now let me conclude by saying just one more way in which I believe that faith in the public square is profoundly important, not just to the current campaign, but this current difficult time in American life time when millions of Americans can't find work, when millions of other Americans who have work are worried about whether they'll still have their jobs next year, when a shocking number of Americans have lost the characteristic American optimism in America's future, when all too many Americans, an overwhelming majority, unfortunately for reasons that are understandable, have lost confidence in our government and many, both here at home and among our enemies in the world, believe that America has begun an irreversible decline. In my opinion, this pessimism is absolutely unjustified, unjustified by fact or history. I believe that this 21st century will be another great century for America, but to make it so, we've got to regain confidence in ourselves. And one of the big reasons for my optimism is those numbers I cited earlier, that more than 90% of the American people believe in God and more than half of Americans say they regularly attend houses of worship. Why is that important? Well, to me it's important, and we have to come back to it as a people, to connect our faith with our feeling about our national future. It's important because faith generally leads to hope. And as members of the LDS Church that I've known show every day in their lives, the combination of faith, which leads to hope, 
and good values and hard work produces amazingly great results. Faith in God, love of country, sense of unity, confidence in the power of every individual. These are the things that have uh, carried the American people through crises greater than the ones we face today and will, I'm sure, propel us forward to a better place if only we will return to those values and recognize them as a source of national strength. And I hope in some sense the presence of faith in the public square will let us do that. The greatest source of America's strength and hope for the future is not in the current divisive and rigid politics of Washington. It is in the broadly shared faith and values of the American people and the reasons for unity and inspiration to serve us so many of us find in the varied houses of worship we attend in this country. We need America's faith and values to be brought to Washington. We come to Congress and to the White House, to the administration, as generally people of faith. And yet it seems to me when we get there, we don't act as if those principles that I've just talked about guide our lives. I will say to you here in this great uh, center, for a long, long time now, Brigham Young University has produced graduates who have understood all this and spread progress and growth throughout our country and indeed the world. And as the old poster used to say of Uncle Sam, your country needs you now and what you believe in uh, more than ever. I'm confident that when you go forth from these gates, moved by your faith and enabled by the education you receive here, your work and your service will help make America not only better, but the more perfect union we have always aspired to be. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for this great honor and opportunity to be with you this morning, and I pray with you that God will bless us all in our great country now and into the future. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Preserving a Land of Religious Freedom with tots from D. Todd Christofferson and Joseph Lieberman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.